what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Glenn, Pat, it's time for new ads. It is time for new ads. They have new sponsors. But we've also got some remaining ones as of well course. that we've got to bless them. So it turns out we're actually behind because people jumped into our Patreon and sent us much money and we didn't realize. Until they said, oh, what's happening? Yeah. Hey, where's our ads? Yeah. Here it is. We're doing it. You know where you should get dog training equipment in North America now? Who? Mojo Dog Co. Mojo Dog Co. Yeah, mojodogco.com mm. is a website. There's a real store. It's in Chicago. Yep. But it's a website you can totally go to and they pretty much sell everything. They've got mills. They've got training gear. They've got apparel. There's food. There's dog beds. Like it's a legit store. I've and been you've there. been there. I've you? been there, yeah. Yeah, I, you've I, witnessed I, it firsthand. You've I, smelt um, the odors. You've tasted the food. You've run on the mills. I committed theft. I stole a tub. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was allowed to take it. Too late now. I've got it. I, yeah. I, I just trained with it today. So basically he's paying us Patreon money for you to steal his toys. Yeah. It's okay. a it's a great Klein tug. It's fantastic. A Klein tug? Yeah. Oh, you know who else sells a Klein tug? Uh, who? The Buffhead. The OG Buffhead. Really? Yes, he does. He does. Yeah. He, he, in fact, he does. I got from the Buffhead a Klein flirt pole which all the dogs favour over all the other ones. Really? Yes. They you like shouldn't that. allow toy preferences, Len. <laughs> <laughs> they, I, I don't. They do. They choose what they want. We have two places that you could get dog training equipment. Yes. MojoDogCode.com. Yeah, in North America. Yeah. And yep. Einzawiener. Yep. Dot Buffhead. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you, know what, you know what's a really cool product? The Rowdy Hound dog kennel. It's the kennel that attaches, like it's a crate that attaches to your motorcycle. Yeah. So you can take your dog anywhere that you're traveling if you own a motorcycle and yep. you want to take your dog with you. If safely, I owned a motorcycle, safely, if safely. I owned a motorcycle or a dog that wanted to ride one, yep. I would 100% get one. I own a motorcycle. You should get one. I should get one. You should get one. I can see you a little Frenchie hanging yep. off the back of your motorbike. Mm. Yeah, I think that Mando would probably cause me to come off my bike. He yeah. would probably rock around like crazy on yeah. that thing. But yeah, yeah little Frenchy. little dog like what George Kittridge does, mm-hmm. who's a wonderful bloke and a dear friend of ours. Sponsor of the show. Sponsor of the show. And he takes his little blue healer, which mm-hmm. is an Australian dog. Mm-hmm. And George has been out here in Australia. He knows all about Australia. He mm-hmm. stayed in Australia. He's done it all. Mm-hmm. But he actually takes his little blue healer. And he rides her all around the state and he teaches other people how to do it as well with their dogs. So not only does he sell the product, but he trains people on how to use it as well. That's great. It is. You know, he should get everybody to do a big road trip up to Canada. Yeah. You know what they could do in Canada? What's that? Go to Dancroft. Ah, Dancroft. Geez, they could watch a puppy class there, couldn't they? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And they're doing seminars as well. Really? Yeah, got seminars, they've got teaching, they've got education. But as I spoke to Daniel, who runs Dan Croft, mm-hmm. he was telling me all about their amazing puppy classes and they do some kick-ass social media. Yeah, they do. They've got some pretty extreme type of breeds over there that they've got them all under perfect control, like all these American staffies. They've got all these bull breeds that people complain about, whinge about and say they can't be trained. And mm-hmm. Dan Croft has them doing not only 
beautiful stays, but they also have them on balls. Mm. So they have the dog, Incredible. you know, like inside a tyre and the dog's doing beautiful drop stays while they're at peace and at harmony and somebody's walking around, all the owners are there with the dogs, they're having a great time. Incredible. Yeah. Oh, I bet those dogs are well conditioned and healthy. Yep. Yeah. How would they do that? Probably the best way is to get yourself some canine suticals. Hey, you've been using it. I have actually, no shit, like jokes aside, Remy was circling the drain. He was in bad shape. And yeah. I said to Narelle, hey, I want to try and get him back in condition, mm. see how much longer I can get from him. Because like the mind is willing, but the body is weak. Yep. And so she hooked me up with all the right things and he's a million times better. In fact, he's actually better than he has been in you know probably two years. And you did a really cool social media content for Narelle the other day, which he really appreciated. I make sweet reels, bro. You do. Yep. You are pretty good with your reels. Again, all jokes aside, I'm not just saying this because Narelle's my wife. I make this very clear, but she what? Is, she's actually a genius with that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. When other people are sort of relaxing and kicking back, I know people are busy and they've got things to do, but Narelle reads white papers. She's doing everything. She's always looking how she can improve the standards in a dog's life. So like She actually amazes me. She's mm. very, very industrious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Mojo Dog Co. Yep. Einz a wiener. Einz a wiener. Mm-hmm. Rowdy Hound. Rowdy Hound. Dan, Dan Croft. Croft. Yep. yep. Thank you all very, very much. You guys sponsor the show. If you want to support the show, support them. Yes. They're the place to get the gear. Yeah. And if you get into Patreon and you tick that box, just know that we don't check that very often. <laughs> yeah, so you've got to tell <laughs> you us. You've got to shoot us a message. Yeah, it's fine for you to let us know. We really appreciate you. We started off our shows talking about some of our new attributes, things that we've got. Yeah. And we would never have got that without Patreon support. It's That's Patreon right. that pays our bills. All right. Enjoy the show. And our sponsors. Enjoy the sponsors. <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm at my house, but I'm joined by a man that's in the studio. It's my co-host. It's Glenn Cook. Happy Australia Day. Yes. Happy straight day back to you. You've given away that we the show isn't live. <laughs> <laughs> Fancy that. <laughs> yeah. Very uneventful day at my house. It's been an eventful day here. Narelle is celebrating the first birthday. I should say we are celebrating the first birthday of Canine Surticals. That's exciting. How come she launched it on Australia Day? Was there a reason for that or that's just how it panned out? Well, I guess it was just ready by that time. She sort of had it ready by mid-January and she just thought, well, it's an Australian product, Australian made. Everything about it is Australian. So she wanted to launch it on Australia Day. Cool. I know in some circles, Australia Day isn't that popular, but largely it is. It's a celebration of being an Australian and being proud of the country that we all live in and all share and occupy that space. And she kind of thought, well, as I stated before, it's an Australian product. I'm proud of it. I'm looking forward to introducing it to the larger dog community. So she did. So today is her first birthday of her business. And I've stated it so many times, I'm nearly blue in the face from it, but I'm so proud of her. She works tirelessly. She doesn't stop. Mm. It's a seven day gig for her. She's nonstop in her office or answering emails or looking at product development or changing her label or working with people in the industry who are regulators and making sure she's doing the right thing and that it's Mm -hmm not going to be contraindicated with other things that dogs are taking. So she really puts a lot of effort into it. So much so that we did a podcast the other day on her podcast, which is natural health for people and pets. In the podcast, she starts bawling her eyes out. She starts, oh, really? Yeah, she really got emotional because she started thinking about making sure that her job is 
taken seriously because she thinks about all of the dogs with all of the problems and she doesn't want to make them worse. Yeah, yeah. So it's a burden that she carries pretty heavily just to make sure that what she's doing is at the highest industry standard that she can possibly employ. Any product, you can have flashy marketing and sell stuff, but I mean, if it's bullshit, you'll come undone. Like people will start realizing, you know, this is just pig shit. But yeah. the amazing thing is, in which I said to Narelle, because she said to me, you know, how do you think we'll know if this is going to be successful or not? And I said, you'll know by results with this sort yeah. of thing. When you're getting into the health space, when people are seeing genuine results, when suffering stops and life is improving and their dogs are happier and they're less inflicted by pain and discomfort and, and disease and so forth. Like she never makes any false claims that she doesn't say, I am guarantee I'm going to cure your dog. She just says that this will help. I guess what I'm trying to say is that she does have a lot of integrity in that space. So she really yeah, thinks sure. about what she's actually doing. So yeah, I'm not going to occupy the whole episode. I know I talk about canonceuticals a lot, but it works. People are happy. The testimonials are roaring in. And I want to thank people for supporting it as well. You know, like there's just bucket loads of people that are on TCP that are loyal customers, but they love it. It's working. It's changing lives. It's making people's relationship with their dogs better. So that is something that I am eternally grateful for that she's doing that and that ultimately it was born from helping Ladybug and she's three years on since her terrible accident and she's still out being reckless and hunting lizards and destroying her beds and all the sort of things like that. So Every day with her is a curse and a blessing. Yeah. But in 2020, it was around February 2020, so we're coming up to genuinely three years when this happened to her. We were literally at that stage where we were almost mourning her death because it was almost imminent that she was going to be put to sleep. Everything was pointing at bad news. Yeah. Neralda said, no, I'm not having it. I'm doing extensive research. I've read about paralysis in mice where procedures were taking place and these remedies were applied to the rats in the same sort of situations and dogs and cats and horses and all those sort of things. So. She literally circumnavigated the world of the internet looking for every piece of creditable science-based evidence as she possibly could and put it together and constructed it from that. So we've been able to enjoy extended life from Ladybug. How much longer that's going to be, no one can say. The promise that we have to each other and certainly one that we've made in Ladybug's name is that if the day comes that she is in incredible pain and things change and she is suffering, we're not going to prolong it and just keep her around because we're emotionally attached to her, we will make that regrettable but loving decision to end it all. But right now, she's good. She's a, as big a monster as she ever was. She just can't run as fast. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Oh, that's awesome. It is awesome. Congratulations, One year. That's fantastic. Yeah. The other thing too, mate, I wanted to add to this. We did an episode last week talking about mentors and being a mentor mm. and the difference between being a trainer or a teacher, a coach, a mentor, and so forth. I shared a pretty intimate story about my relationship with Bruce. In there, I was talking about how he created an opportunity for me and how I felt that it's a debt that I can never repay to him, and especially since he passed on during that time. Mm. And it was incredible. Like, I really didn't think that was going to be an episode where it was going to mean a lot to other people. It meant a lot to me, but I didn't think it was going to mean a lot to other people. I got hit with like a wave of people messaging me about that episode sharing stories about the same sort of thing that's happened to them. And even miraculously, this is the reason why I want to talk about this, is that I've rekindled some relationships with people that we fell apart from each other over certain things. And 
there have been a couple of people that have messaged me and say, man, I listened to all the shows and I think it's time that we talked about things that happened in the past. And one of those people, we sort of parted company. It was just one of those unfortunate things, you know, as we started off as friends and things went a little bit askew. I would be remiss to say that it was never on my mind. It was. And it was just nice to reconnect and talk about things. And it's been so many years. And I guess what I was very appreciative of was that we were both mature enough to listen to each other and realize maybe a lot of ego got in the way, a lot of barriers that never really needed to be present. It's relit a friendship that I thought was gone by the wayside. That's awesome. The really nice thing about it was the person who I'm not going to name on air, but the person who them and I had that conversation about, they were really grateful of many of the connections that I gave to them and some of the opportunities that I gave to them in getting them work and giving them a head start and introducing them to the right people and opening doors for them. I didn't do it for that reason. I didn't do it to be remembered for that and to hold that over their head. It was still nice of them to say, that's been on my mind and I'd never really wanted this. I think we were both too proud at the time and we just thought, fuck it, let's just close this door. But it was nice that through a message that somebody heard on a podcast, there was a an opportunity to rediscuss thing and a, and a relationship was rekindled out of it. And it was also yeah, nice cool. to see some of the, the writings that people were writing on, on our forum where they were talking about their own experiences where they've had similar things or they've had a really important mentor or somebody that's really meant something to them as well. So I appreciate that meant something when I kind of put the episode together and I thought, uh, this might be just one of those episodes that people will go, get back onto the dog training, you sons of bitches. There were a few people that it sort of hit them in the feels and it, it hit me in the feels too. So I, oh, that's cool. I enjoyed those opportunities to have those conversations. So thank you guys. It made my week. To be honest, it's really been a great start to 2023 to think that I've got more friends than enemies. That's fantastic. Yeah. All right. Let's get on with the dog stuff. Let's get on with the dog stuff. I put up a post today, ask us anything, because we've been talking about doing another round of those episodes. And there's plenty of them there. So we'll just start working our way through it. Yeah. Our first question is from Jay Slocum and says, this may have already been addressed in the past, But in the case of the clicker as a reflexive marker, am I devaluing my clicker when I use a clicker with a client's dogs while my dog watches from his kennel? I think that's a pretty good question. I think it is. What do you reckon? I think if you're not careful, you definitely can. However, one of the interesting things that occurs regularly when we're doing NDTF courses and we've got let's say 15 students out on the oval, everyone's got a dog and there's clickers banging off galore out on the field. And that question has certainly been a matter of discussion in many courses. Like students have felt that that's going to be a conflict of having dogs close by, clickers going off. One of the interesting things, and again, my requirement for observing a lot of behaviors that you see in students working or working with their dogs or you with a dog, et cetera, et cetera, is that I've noticed that some dogs will look at somebody else clicking and they'll realize, oh, that's not my clicker. That's somebody mm. else's clicker. Yeah. When we're talking about three decades ago, we used to consider that dogs weren't all that smart and they were basically just doing things out of either instinct or fundamentally basic learned behavior. However, over time, science is more regulating this and supporting it. But I believe myself 
when I see dogs behaving and some of the things they're doing and realizing they're a lot smarter than we actually gave them credit for. There's evidence Mm -hmm. to support that. And it's very interesting when I have seen dogs working with people on the oval and there'll be somebody in close proximity with their dog. And as I said, they've clicked and they've gone, oh, is that an opportunity? And you can see the dog looking around and going, oh, no, that's you and that dog. That's not Mm. my guy and me. That's somebody else. I'm not trying to anthropomorphically analyze this and say that's exactly what's going on. But when you're looking at this as a repetitive function and you can see that it's having no bearing on the dog, like the dog's not being confused or not acting out of character or not being able to perform or not being able to progressively move on with what it's required to do, then you have to analyze that strategically and say, there is definitely recognition from the dog that that clicker doesn't belong to it, but this one does, even though it's an identical clicker. It's usually either a canine evolution one or a canine paradigm one. They're identical. They're the teardrop clickers. They make the same sound. There's no variation between them whatsoever. The only thing that I could say is a variation is the distance between it and the dog. But the dog yeah. has worked out over time. This space between us means it's not mine. I guess if I was going to evaluate this, and yes, we are more deductive and have higher levels of cognition. However, it's very similar to us. If you're in traffic and you can hear a horn beeping at length from you and you realize that's not for me, you don't really pay it any attention. But if it's right behind you and you hear the horn beeping, then you go, oh yeah, that horn's for me. I'm looking at my phone while I'm supposed to be moving off or I'm daydreaming and there's a green arrow, whatever it is. So immediately it snaps you out of your funk and you start moving on. That's my interpretation of what I see and what I feel. It may not be entirely accurate. There might be other science that is saying that's not right. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I agree. I think the first and most important thing to sort of think about in regards to this question, he says, am I devaluing my clicker when I use a clicker with a client? I suppose the question is when we talk reflex response of the clicker, I have been very, very guilty of this in the past in insisting that everybody have that and that if you're going to use a clicker, you have to get this reflexive response. And I think that there's people who have like quite cognitive markers where when you give your marker, whether it's a clicker or a verbal marker or whatever, and the dog really understands like, yep, okay, I know that you are telling me I'm correct and where this is a sequence of events that's going to unfold and, and the dog's thinking about it. And the the other is what I preached for a really long time because it was really drilled into me is this idea of a reflexive marker where the dog is not in control of its actions. I and many others were really guilty of pushing that and building that and wanting that. And I think for sure there's value in that, but I think you have to consider whether you're actually using that value because the whole point of having that reflexive marker is so that reflex is out of the control of the dog, right? And so... If you're going to use certain training modalities, you know, like if it's going to be helped to you, like in a, in a dog that doesn't have any issues, if you're going to use the clicker to promote your out and you're going to teach it that way, then you, you want that reflex, you need it. And if you've got a dog that has reactivity or aggression issues or, you know, any of that kind of crap and you're using a clicker in those sort of situations, then I think that having a truly reflexive marker where you can have the dog act on reflex to the clicker without making conscious decisions, like find itself doing the thing afterwards rather than make a choice to do it. I think that if you're going to want to train that way, 
and there's reasons why you would. I think that there's value in doing that from time to time. Then you really do need to isolate your clicker and use it in a particular way, right? And I think that you need to sort of protect your dog somewhat from hearing the clicker of others or hearing the clicker in, in its presence. One thing I'll say, I've got like two stories that sort of relate to this is one is one time when Rip was quite young. I went and saw the girls at the Hound Lounge and he came with me and they had had just had clickers made. He picked one up. Remy was with me. Remy was in the car and he was in the he was in his kennel in the back of the car and Rip sitting in his baby seat there. And he was probably two, I think. Remy was one, I think, and sort of right in his peak of really in tune, right? Like it was before any of his injuries and he was really sort of on fire as a dog. And it was when I was really putting the maximum amount of effort into developing his foundation and everything. And he had a, an explosive reflexive response to the clicker. And we're in the car driving along and Rip has this clicker that he got from the hound lounge, right? That he had like stolen from them. And we had a set of traffic lights and I just hear this click, 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 right? And I'm like, uh-oh. And I heard Remy light up from in the back of the car and actually hit the door. Like I could hear him make contact with the door of his kennel. And then Rip just starts clicking, clicking, clicking because he's a two-year-old that's found the clicker. And I could hear Remy losing his mind in the car, in the back of his crate, like smashing into the crate, trying desperately to get out of it because it had that, you know, it was imprinted with him that not only is it a reflex that you have to get it, but there's a loss if you don't, right? Like it, it requires a big amount of effort. And because of the things that the situations that I put him in, especially with a lot of the box feeding stuff that I'd done with him young and the overcoming difficulty and adversity. The poor dog was convinced that, well, you must want me to smash it out of this crate, right? So he's like pulling gorilla moves with inside. Remember those like ridiculous steel crates that I had that yes. were basically raptor proof, right? <laughs> yeah. Like Remy smashing on that, trying to get out and obviously couldn't. And, you know, I'm yelling at Rip to stop, which is only making it do more. And so I sort of lived this moment where I got to see the clicker essentially expire. The dog gave up. He stopped trying to get out of his kennel because it went on for several minutes of rip clicking. And I thought, oh, that's done a lot of damage. And then in the next session, it didn't really do any damage. Like I didn't notice. There was no change. Mm. And then Rip used to also help me quite a lot when he was much younger and he was more into it before he was, you know, like he's a he's an independent seven-year-old at the moment, right? But like <laughs> when he was younger, three and four, he used to want to be much more involved in training. And I used to involve him a lot as much as I could, right? Trying to get him into it. Didn't work. But one day, and I actually have video of this, I put him in, in my garage and he was actually in the garage space and then me and Rip were in the open space. And I put Remy in a down night click. And as you'd expect, he, can't, he jumps up, he comes running out mugs me for the food, all the things that I'd taught him to do and expected of him with the clicker. And then I put him back in the garage and I let Rip click. And he got up kind of very cautiously and came walking out and took one piece of food as it was given to him by Rip. And I realized in that moment, because I was worried about the same, I was worried about that when I use the clicker, I want that explosive, powerful response. And when I'm letting Rip use the clicker with my dog, he's not giving that. And I was like, hmm, why is that happening? And I thought about, is he reading the play? Is he being reflexive in this moment? Is he being cognitive in this moment? Like what's really happening? So I'm giving him no opportunity to see who was clicking, but just hear the click. There was a different response. Mm. What I came to realize was that he doesn't click the clicker the same way that I do. Right. So I click it in a certain speed and he clicked it at another speed. And having observed that Remy could react differently to the two different things, he knew who was clicking without being able to see it just by the sound of the clicker. Mm. Now, was that cognitive or was that reflexive in that moment? I don't know. Because I think 
This is one of the things when we start talking about lots of different markers. You know, I use multiple markers. I use three or four of them. I don't go too crazy with it. I think there's value in it. I've spoken before about how it, I used to just be a one marker guy and how it came to be that I was unhappy with that and why I separated certain things. And I have multiple markers, three or four of them, maybe five. But there's some people who have 17 different markers. And the thing of those markers, when people say like, oh, it's ridiculous. How would the dog even remember? It's like, well, the dog doesn't need to remember. You can have as many markers as you want. You can have 400 different markers. If you get them right, the dog will get them right if you've imprinted them correctly, right? Because if they are a reflexive response. Are they markers though, or are they cues? I mean, I think we're getting into shady territory. Well, it's a language, right? And we talked about the importance of language multiple times during the show. I feel that I've watched people doing instructional videos or even online seminars or even talks about using all these markers and so forth. And I I thought, well, to me, it just sounds like you're using just verbal cues combined with some markers. I think it's language where the proprietor is trying to be impressive by saying, you know, like I'm doing something different that's not done by the average person. I'm thinking you are doing almost identical what's done by most people are in training. You're just using selective language and you're using a a verbiage that is trying to entrap people to think, oh, my God, this is something else. Like I've got to get into this. Maybe I don't know. I I think- I think there's definitely value in having more than one marker. I think, you know, being able to distinguish between- That I agree uh, with. That I agree with. I have got no issues with that and I totally agree with that. If you're a person that you're saying, you know, I've got, let's say one to five markers, I would say, absolutely. They're strong characteristics. and So five is your limit. You don't think you could have six? (laughs) You're just baiting me. (laughs) But that's the question, right? So like, this is the thing. If five is okay, is six okay? And if six is okay, is seven okay? What point are we saying, well, they're no longer markers and they're cues? Like, I don't have an answer to that. I don't know. But what I know is that there's people who, like Shade Whitesell's a good one. I haven't seen her staff, but I know, like I've been told by many people that she's many, many markers. And I think that it's fine to do that. But the issue is you remembering what marker to give. And if they're loaded reflexively, as we just said, the dog can't get it wrong because it's a reflex response to the marker or the cue or the noise or the sound or whatever it is that happens. Yep. The dog will react. If you've loaded them reflexively, the dog has no choice but to act in the way that you have cued him to. But the point is you remembering to do it. And I think that as you break down markers, you like I say, you can go into lots of different, you know, how many branch plans do you want? Because for me, I have a marker for there's food and there's toys from me. And then there's like a, a toy that's on the floor over there. And, 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 and then I have my whistle. So for me, that's probably enough. I think that's enough. But take, for example, the bulldog that I'm teaching at the moment, or the American bully, the way that I'm teaching him to heal is different to how I've taught other dogs in the past. I'm teaching him to flip out and take the reinforcer, you know, like leave to the left and take the reinforcer from my right hand behind me. In order to achieve that, I have to use a different marker to what I would use if I just say get it. Because if I if I give him my normal marker like I do, he would come across my body and take it from my right hand. And I still want to be able to deliver in that way. And I still want to be able to deliver like from my armpit or from you know my left hand and pop it in front of him. I want that kind of thing. But then I need a different marker that tells him that it's the same reinforcer, but you have to take it in a particular way. Like I think that's the thing. Like we can start to separate what reinforcer is it and they can have different markers and then you can go into how must you take that and they can have different markers and i don't think there's any rules i don't think we have to get too stuck on it you've seen me teach some people as well like who have a very powerful dog and need to slow their dogs down a little bit i've encouraged some people 
to have like a two-stage marker where we say to the dog, like, yes, that's correct. The behavior is over, but wait politely while I get your toy out because of the person isn't able to deliver it that fast, or maybe the dog is too sharp and there's a fair amount of danger in actually letting them get the toy. Mm. So you need a marker where you say to the dog, like, yep, that was correct. The job is over but don't blast through me. Wait a minute. Let me get the toy out. Let me deliver it to you. And now I give you permission to actually take it. And so like, I think there's lots to cover in markers. And I think that like, I'm pretty marker agnostic these days. I don't get too bogged down. I think if it's a system and it works, then it's a great system. I still teach people when I teach, you know, especially at seminars and stuff, I still teach people, this is my marker system and how I use it. And a lot of thought has gone into this, but it's not definitive. And I don't, I no longer sort of demand that people try and go into my system and I'm much more comfortable changing to work within other people's systems. Because as I say, I think that there is value in having that reflexive clicker. I think for sure, to go back to the question, there's value in having that, but you have to sort of think if you're using the clicker in front of with other dogs in front of your own, who's in a crate, then you really have to weigh up the pros and cons of that. And the answer to Jay's question is observable by Jay. Absolutely. Like you, can, you can see that. If you're concerned about it devaluing the clicker for your own dog, you should be able to observe that. And if you think that it is, then go, okay, I'm causing myself an issue. I need to address that. Yep. But if not, then you don't have a problem. As you work with the same dog more and more, like I think when you start with a dog, the more precise that you are, the more clear it'll be to that dog and the faster the training will happen. So with a new dog, the more precise, get your markers in check, do all that kind of thing, be very accurate in what you do. And I think as well, if you're looking to make radical change with the dog, you also need to be incredibly accurate, right? Mm. You need to you need to have those very, uh, if not reflexive, but very deliberate markers where the dog knows exactly what's expected because you're going to be giving inputs to that dog. You're going to be saying like, hey, do this, don't do this. And you want to sort of narrow down exactly what it is. And by that, I mean, especially if you're trying to fix an issue, like you've got an aggression case or something like that, and you're trying to work through it, that precision is what's going to help the dog understand quicker. And, you know, like time is money. You want to sort of have the dog understand these things as quickly as possible. But with your own dog over time, the dog just figures you out, right? And I think that if you've got a several-year-old dog and you're still focusing on whether you need reflexive markers for that dog, you're probably focusing on some of the wrong things. That's my opinion. I'm not saying Jay's doing that, but that's sort of one of the things that I think about is that I have been in the past really preachy about like, you must have these reflexive markers and they must, your dog must act in this way and they must take the reinforcer when you give the marker and all these sorts of things. Because when people come to me, it's usually because they're starting out or because they're looking to fix an issue. But the reality of it is, like with my own two personal dogs, I can tell them to do the same shit in a hundred different ways. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I can get Remy to do almost everything that he can do just with body cues because it's inevitable those body cues exist and try as I might. And I can do them without them as well. Like I can be very precise and I can give him nothing but verbal commands. But he'll heal. He'll go in between my legs. He'll go into a front position. I could probably even do a send away. You know, I can certainly do a retrieve. There's lots of different exercises that he would do without me saying a word, just because he can read the play and understands the way you're moving indicates that this is what needs to happen. And similarly, like I haven't used a clicker with him in a long time because you know, we, we just passed that level in training. We're not really doing it. Mm. Valerie has watched me train untold number of dogs. She's definitely a dog that very easily learns through observation or through mimicking or whatever, but like- Osmosis. 
Yeah, exactly. Right. Mm. So I can give, like, she will heal with like 20 different commands. Yep. <laughs> Like, cause she's like, Hey, I got it. I've seen you teach a dog that. And that led to reinforcement for another dog. So I'll do it. And you're in tune with what I'm in tune with what you want. All of that is my very sort of roundabout way of saying that. I think, are you devaluing that marker? Well, your clicker, you can observe that. If you observe that you are, you then have to think, do I even give a shit that I am? Is that actually going to cost me? Now it might, it might for sure. If you're working on something specific where you need that, then yes, put in the work, do what you need to, to separate the dog, get a different brand of clicker. They yep. sound different. Yep. Click in a different way, blah, blah, blah. There's very, there's many and various things you can do. I think that it's worth asking yourself, am I actually using the power of the reflexive marker or is that cognitive marker sufficient? The last thing I'll say on it is as well, like you remember when we interviewed uh, Brantis, right? Yep. And he told us that Pavlov was misquoted and or there was a, a problem in the translation. And we say that it's a conditioned response, but what it actually is, is creates a condition. And I think that's one of the things that like, that's played on my mind quite a bit. And I think that when we talk about that, you know, reflexive response, that classical conditioning is that I think that Sometimes the conditions have to be correct in order for that to work. Mm. So if your dog is observing from in the crate, I think that your dog can come to understand that when I'm in the crate, those markers are not for me. This is a different set of conditions. And so my conditioned response is not in effect now because the conditions are not correct. So that's worth keeping in mind as well. Listening to you chatting about that then, it brought up some old memories of early ADT training during that time, especially for senior trainers, the rule was if your dog was under effective management and control at all times, you could bring your dog to class and you could even bring your dog in class and have it be part of the class environment, which I regularly did with Harley. Harley came into pretty much all the classes that I taught. Usually what I would do with him, class would go for about 45 minutes. I bring him in and I put him in a drop stay in the middle of the field. So all the dogs were there. Harley was in a drop stay and then I proceeded to teach the class. Now, all the commands that I used with him, I was using teaching people while I was there. Not once did he break his position. Not once did he just think, oh, you're talking to me. I'm going to get up now. In fact, it was the way that I would establish the connection between he and I is, yes, he was conditioned over a long period of time and he understood when I was talking to him and when I was not. So if I wasn't talking to him, he wouldn't construe that as, are you talking to me? I should get up. I should come over and do what you're commanding of me right at this point in time. In fact, most times he would just go to sleep on the ground until I walked over to him, got his attention, and then gave him a command direct to him and then he would perform the command. So mm. I would regularly go over to him. I would release him for good behavior while the class was performing a skill set. Then I would go back and put him in a position. Sometimes I'd have him do a stand stay. So he might do a 10-minute stand stay in a class or a five-minute sit stay or a a 20-minute down stay or whatever it was. So I would just put him in different positions. Not only was it a selling point, but it was also to show people, I'm not a novice at this. I can actually do this with my own dog. Here he is in the middle of the class, off lead, no collar, nothing, while your dogs are all doing this. He's at complete liberty, but he's choosing to do what I'm telling him to do. Yes, it's been conditioned. It's been two years of training that I've put into this dog. He understands and collates the information carefully and selectively on what he should and shouldn't be doing at this point in time. Not Mm -hmm. once did I ever see what I was doing as causing a misinterpretation between he and I on what he should be doing when it counted. So when we went back into 
whatever skill set we were working on, I never came out of that thinking, oh, boy, I wish I didn't do that in the class because this is having a profound effect on his mm. his control and management when I really am counting on it for law enforcement work. Mm. Yeah, I think that sort of makes me think about the fact, you know, like I don't teach dogs to stay. For me, if I tell you to sit, it's sit until I tell you to do something else or I release you and you're on your own time. I agree. Whatever. Like I never tell dogs to stay. But one thing I do tell you know, my own dogs and I encourage people to do the same is I have like a prolonged static command and which usually is kind of stay. Oh, although I don't say stay, I have a different word, but it's the same function where I say to the dog, like, Hey, you're going to be here a while. That's kind of all I'm saying when I say that, like, I'm not saying, you know, like if I put my dog in a down, I expect him to hold that down in the exact position as he's been taught it yep. and stare intently at me the whole time. And even if I go out of sight, I want him looking at where I went, you know, like I want, there's that expectation of reinforcement or if not reinforcement progression and action, mm. like something's going to come of this. But I do think there's value in having, and this relates to Jay's question because you can do the same with your own dog in a crate while using the clicker around other dogs is this command that says like, Hey, I will tell you when we're working again, but right now we're not, you just have to stay here. Don't have any expectation of anything good happening. You just have to stay right here. And that that's that prolonged static behavior command. And as you mentioned before, which I completely concur with, that if you see it being antagonistic to the dog and creating a genuine problem, then stop what you're doing. If that dog is having a hard time dealing with that and there's no comprehension of what's going on, stop it. Change your marker, like use a whistle instead, or as you suggested, get a clicker that's got an entirely different sound. Use your original clicker for your dog and your client's clicker. Make sure that the dog has no conditioned effect to it and then use that one. I think that... That's something not to be overlooked is that the brand of clicker that you use as well as the whistle, that has an effect. We've spoken about this in the past. Again, when I was you know, on my mission of making people have reflexive markers is that I use a Fox 40 whistle, like a P-less whistle, and I have like a bunch of them because my dog won't react to a different whistle. And yep. I've been around, same deal. I've used it. I, I've tested that. I bought a bunch of these cheap, crappy ones. They make a different pitch. My dog was like, nah, that's not for me. Yep. And of course he would learn quick. He would put the two together and you, like you could make the dog understand it very quickly. Like anything. But adding any new marker to another one is yep. easy enough and to generalize the two. But in that instance, like, you know, if I were at a trial and I forgot my whistle and I had to borrow someone else's and it was a different brand of whistle, I would be uneasy. I would be like, huh, this is not necessarily going to work the way that, like I wouldn't expect that to work as well as it had in training. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, especially if you hadn't got uh, previous acquisition to it and you needed the time yeah. under the saddle to get it. I agree. Yeah. All right. That one took a turn. Yes, I agree. It did. There's some complexities to it that need to be worked yeah, through. Yeah, that's it. Mm. That's it, right? It's not so linear. I mean, even before when you were talking about multiple markers, I was thinking of that line in There's Something About Mary where he says, I've got a solution to eight-minute abs, seven-minute seven minute. abs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've thought about this quite a lot because I was a one-marker guy. Like, I really was. And I was like, why do you need any more? And then you were there. Like, it's a story I've told many times when at the Mike Suttle seminar, when we we're doing bite work with Valerie and it was like a joke, you know, and she was outperforming a lot of dogs. I sent her in on a bark and hold. She's got that ridiculous bark for a little yeah. springer yeah. and she does little bite work on little puppy sleeves and she loves it. It's not serious at all. And, but it's fun for her. And it was a laugh. Everybody's enjoying how, and that was back when she was at the peak of her training, right? Like, remember she used to have some flashy obedience and, oh, yeah. and everything was Everything was on point. 
And I set her in for a bark and hold. She's barking. Everything's looking good. People are impressed. I think here's what comes my moment to shine. I'm going to tell her to bite and people are going to be even more impressed. Me and her are going to be the king dingalings. I give her the marker. I said yes, because at the time I was just like, uh, that was it. It was just yes for everything. And in that moment, a bird was flying past and she saw the shadow and she, instead of biting, she just turned around and peeled downfield chasing that bird. <laughs> and, and in that moment, I had to confront, like everyone's laughing, and I had to confront the reality that the dog didn't do what I wanted her to do, but she did do what she was 100% allowed to do. Because to me, that yes meant like, you're done doing what I needed you to do. Thank you very much. Here's your reinforcer. You can take it. And to a Springer Spaniel, chasing a bird downfield is much higher value reinforcer than essentially playing tug with a stranger, which is how she sort of saw the bite work, right? Mm. So if that was a Mally, I'd think, geez, I've got a problem here. But with the Springer, definitely thought I have a problem. It's a different problem. And I was like, hmm, what I wanted to happen didn't happen, but nobody made any errors. And that's when I thought, well, my system's broken. And that's when I thought I need to add a different marker. I need to be able to tell her specifically to take a particular reinforcer, not another, and still find it reinforcing, like actually have it make the behavior that preceded it more likely to happen. And so that was when I went on to multiple markers and really like I've tried a lot of different things. I've messed with a lot of different ideas and different markers for different things and different numbers of them. And, and I've kind of settled where I am and I pretty feel pretty confident with that, even though I do sort of mix and match depending on the dog that's in front of me and what specific thing they need. But I'm very open to the idea. I think that there's some very interesting and very thoughtful training that happens with people who do use many markers. To be totally frank, that kind of thing usually happens from people from the sort of plus R side because they need to be more reflexive in certain things because they're asking the dog to do things that maybe the dog wouldn't choose to do in that moment. And also they don't have a way to tell the dog like, but stop doing this other thing. I need you to do that. So the more that you can rely on the dog not being cognitive in the choices that they make and actually acting on reflex, the better in that moment. And so that's why it's people from that community that often have many, many markers. And as I say, if they are loaded correctly, they'll work, but it's up to you to remember which one to do. And you know, I only have five and sometimes I give the wrong one. So there's no fucking way I could have 17 and get it right every time. There's just no way. So definitely not six then. Definitely not six. <laughs> Maybe seven. But you definitely know, never six. A good point that you were touching on before with Valerie and her selective choices. This is one of the fundamentals that I think people systematically get it wrong time and time again is when we're trying to select an appropriate reinforcer for the dog, but we're not actually establishing what is primary reinforcement to a dog at any given time. And that's the cautionary tale that I see many trainers get fucked up on. Mm. I understand the reasoning behind it, but when there was this whole consideration on existential food and it had to be dry food pellets and, and so forth, for me, I've always been on, of the belief is that if I have something manageable and convenient in the form of a primary reinforcer, and I did a lot of discovery with this when I was working with bird training as well, I'm trying to figure out what was the actual primary reinforcer. What did the bird really want? And when you're answering that question, when you have to selectively think through that, this is a line that I learned from Boyd many years ago when we were, again, back in the ADT days, was a primary reinforcer is anything that the student or the subject wants at that time. And there's mm. got to be a lot of thought and consideration that goes into that. A lot of people don't really peel back on that and think about that. They think you're going to take what I want you to take because this is the system that I'm working in and, and the system demands that it's got to be this. 
yeah, okay, you can shorten that list for any of the animals or any any student that you're working with and saying, well, unfortunately, the list is short. So here it is, and that's what you're subjected to, and I'll deprive you of everything until you start realising that that's it and that's all that's allowable in your repertoire of reinforcers. However, mm. and I choose my words very carefully here, it's the same thought when I was talking to greyhound people when hide training was outlawed mm. in Australia. I was working with a group of vets and we were talking about instilling drive through artificial means, like using tugs and squeakers and all sorts of things like that. You know, I was showing videos of working dogs working for bite sleeves and chew toys and so forth and balls on strings and so forth. And I said, look at the acceleration that these dogs have for these items. They're all artificial. To that dog, that is the primary reinforcer. That's the thing that the dog most wants at that time. I mean, yes, there's some genetics there. Yes, there has been considerations in the breeding program, which was another question that was in the line of questions that came up on your point. And a couple of the people there that have been involved in raising, training and breeding greyhounds for many years said, mate, this is something that there's a lineage of these sighthounds that they have a genetic disposition to choosing the hides of rabbits over anything else that we're going to produce. It's definitely going to have an effect on the dogs. And Mm. I said, I totally get that, but you're not allowed to do it anymore. It's now against the law. That's That's the problem that you're faced with. So your new breeding considerations now will have to be on selecting criteria in the offspring and your progeny to select what is appropriate to the dogs because your list just got considerably shortened. So there are times where that is an absolute must and that was a legal issue for them. I said, the problem for you is if you go and use a hide in your training in the back blocks where nobody's watching you, there's two issues at play here. One, somebody may film you and you'll be on the six o'clock news. Two, when the dog goes into race and the hide is not real, you're going to get a less effect of your dog because your dog will, your dog may think, well, I'll just run to keep up with the dogs because that's what I do and that's part of the conditioning that I have, but I'm not really into this artificial thing that's being lured away from me. So I said, look, we're talking about something that may have to change over a period of years. You're going to have to select differently. The example of that was the clip of those greyhounds tearing down the track after the lure and a real rabbit came on course and they all took off. They all staged right and took off and ran off after the rabbit, you know, because they've left something that's artificial for the real deal. And those sort of things are strong considerations people have to use when the selection of the primary reinforcer is at play. It's something that I'm always deeply connected with and deeply in thought with or in tune with with the dog because I'm I'm looking at my dog's behavior and thinking do you really want this or have I just considerably shortened your list and you're taking mm. it in absence of the real thing because there's been times even with Mando the Roddy that I'm working with Brandy all of the dogs that I've had anything to do with I can see when something is twinkling in their eye like they're thinking I'll take this, it's available, and I'll show appreciation because I know that's all I'm going to get. But when something else is going on or when something else is on their mind and I can see that they're eyeballing that in the distance, then I know it's the bane of every trainer when you've got a competing motivator and you've got to teach the dog, no, keep on track. You're not going to get Mm. access to this. Yes, I know it's a training thing. Yes, I know it's a conditioning thing. Yes, I know it's the job of a trainer to bring the dog and bring it back on the rails and teach the dog to stay on the pathway that's been created for it. 
The problem being is that some people just don't have the skill set to do that. They can't compete outside of what the dog is really wanting and selecting as a genuine primary motivator or reinforcer. I've seen that. I've seen that video of the greyhounds where the rabbit goes across and they all peel off and chase it. I've wondered about that for a while, right? Mm. Like, we'll never know the answer. But like, for sure, the obvious explanation is they choose the real rabbit over the other. But I think there's probably, it's maybe not that easy. You know, like they've never caught that one that goes around the the slider. And so I think that greyhounds kind of get in that, you know, I don't know shit about greyhounds, right? But I think that they're probably in the sort of when these stalls open, I go running kind of no matter what. And it's the frenzy of each other. They're racing each other. Of course. You know, there's that motivation, all that kind of thing. And then I think. And that's the life that they know rabbit too. Went across, yeah, exactly. Right. So it's a condition they're mm. doing it. And I think as that rabbit went across real or fake, I think that there's a lot of things that are important. Like that's novelty for for starters, right? It's something different. And maybe it only took you know, one of them to be interested in it. And then all the others were because they're all just in the same frenzy doing the same action. I think there's the idea that, well, I've never caught, even if they don't realize this one's real and that one's fake, well, I've never caught that one that's on the track. And maybe I could catch this one that's actually moving because it's moving like something that I have caught in the past. Like I've thought about that quite a bit because I've seen that footage you know, everybody's seen it. It's not as simple, I don't think, as one is real and the other is fake and therefore they choose the real one. And I think just the angle that it's going at, it just appeared more catchable. Like, mm. I, I think that as well, like if you had a decoy, like with biting dogs, right? If you had a decoy running downfield in a flea and then as a the dog was chasing him, another decoy went across obliquely, every dog's going to change direction. It's going to go after that decoy. That's going to happen. And like without specific training to stop that happening, that's for sure going to happen. That's why in PSA, in the level one courage chest, like, yes, we do the bag toss in order to slow the dog down and make the catch safer. Yes, that's one of the reasons. But a lot of people are shocked to find out that they're like legit working dog that's even bit people for real will chase that bag. Mm. You know what I mean? And I think just because it's like it's novelty and it's literally a bag that gets thrown obliquely across the dog's front and he gives up on an actual courage test, someone charging him, presenting a real threat. If the dog is strong and really high in prey, he doesn't really see the person as a threat. He's like, whatever, I'm going to smash her. I've, I've smashed every other decoy. I'm going to smash this one. And he just sees something moving and it's just like, oh, everything about that, you know, Mother Nature says I have to chase that. So I think without prior training and nobody is going to, uh, well, I don't know. I, I, my assumption is that Greyhound people aren't testing while you're chasing this if something else goes across, right? I don't imagine that they need that. That was a fluke occurrence. Mm. Yeah, I wonder whether it was because it was real and they're interested in the real rabbit or it was just circumstances meant that even if that were a fake rabbit that moved in that way, they would still choose that one. I would really love to see that clip play out to see what happened. I mean, look, they can't catch the rabbit and do anything with it. They're all wearing muzzles while they're racing, um, which means that the rabbit's in pretty good stead as it was. However, what happened next, you know, and I agree with you, this is very much a chicken or the egg sort of paradigm where you're thinking – why did this happen? Was it the appearance of the rabbit? This is something new on the track, something novel. Was it the odour? Was it genetics at play there? Science says 
uh, stipulated that this language or this information, this data is passed on in generations. So it's fair to say there is a, a huge component of the biology of that animal to say, this is something that I should be chasing, not this other thing. Mm, this, yeah. this is conditioned. This is the life I know, but this is the genetics. This is my actual DNA demanding that I do what I was bred to do and chase and mm. hunt this rabbit. I mean, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of years of evolution in these dogs being bred to a fine point where it's all chase that rabbit, trace that skin, pursue it, catch it, eat it, kill it. It's the evolution and the biology of a predatory animal. And then all of a sudden, because of a legal reason, they say, no, stop, people don't like it. It's ugly, which it is. I'm not condoning, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm not condoning any of that old school horrible yeah, there's, stuff. I, I think it's worth pointing out there's a very big difference between a dog in the wild chasing another animal versus you setting up a scenario Putting where it a rabbit in a bag gets shredded and, to make sure yeah, a dog goes fast. Yeah, 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 I agree. It's the fairness of the situation that people had a lot of problems with is that, yes, in the field, that's nature. It's torment and torture in the other capacity. Yeah. So, yep, I get it. And that's why I said at the start, I choose my words carefully. I'm not attacking any one group of people. I'm just saying that once again, when we're starting to talk about observation and what you can see and the process and how that is all unfolding, it's very interesting what happened next. And I would love to yeah. have seen, you know, what happened beyond that clip. So if anyone's got it and it's not depicting anything brutal or anything like that, like it's not an act of cruelty. I'd love to see how that played out. Like what did the greyhounds do and how did they yeah. recover from it? What happened next? Hopefully none yeah. of the greyhounds got hurt either when they all did that enormous stage right and just tore off out of the field. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's move on. Yep. Our next one, Eleanor Post says, I'd like to hear you, and she means me, and Glenn discuss establishing good boundaries, trust, and getting client compliance in training programs, doing this without coming across as it's my way or the highway, but also not ending up in circuitous discussions about methodologies that end up wasting everyone's time and sometimes people's money. Not being pushy, but also not being a pushover specifically for trainers who do one-on-one -on -one sessions with clients versus board and trains. Mm. What do you think? I feel that when anybody comes to see you in a consult, they're coming to see you because of your professionalism. Usually these days, and even in the past, people did their homework, they asked around, they had a problem, and they went to the community or their family and said, this is what's happening. I don't know what to do about it. What should I do? And usually you'll find that somebody in that community or family circle have said, hey, I know a guy or a girl that is experienced in this thing. They've helped a colleague or a friend. They got great results. Why don't you go and talk to them? The reason they're coming to you, and I say this with conviction, is that generally speaking, you're the smartest person in the room at that time on that particular subject matter. So if somebody comes to you in the prospect of, improving the relationship with their dog, they've done some research or some backtracking, you would hope, on finding out who are you and what are you capable of doing. So I feel that when a client comes down and you are doing an analytic process of finding out what's this dog all about, what's the relationship between the two of them, and what's really bugging the owner. Any trainer worth their salt will advise the client on what's actually best for them after they've had time to listen to their tale have a look at the relationship between their dog 
And especially these days, while there's the capability of people to video what's actually going on at home, or if the trainer is actually doing an in-home consultation where they're going around walking down the street while the dog is misbehaving on the walk or doing whatever it is, once again, that is annoying the owner of the dog, and then giving a finding at the end of it. It's fundamentally all about research and discovery and then a conclusion. So Mm. I feel that there is a lot of time in research and discovery that needs to be done. When clients have contacted me in the past and they've told me about things, and even recently, you know, like I spoke to somebody the other day, they had an issue with a dog doing X, Y, and Z behavior. And I said to them, how does that affect you? Is it bothering you? Is it bothering your partner? Is it bothering anybody else in the house? Is it bothering your guests? Tell me, let's get to the point on what it is that's really costing you here. So they said to me, this is what it is. This is what the problem actually is. This is what I want to work on. So I gave them a program and I gave them a realistic timeline of what I feel after all the decades that I've been in the industry, what I feel is the best way to work on that solution. What I never do is I never give people absolution or guarantees because there's so many factors in front of it. I looked through those questions that you posed earlier on and somebody actually said they were asking a similar type of question and they said a lot of times the answer is going to be it depends. And that Mm. unfortunately is a realistic answer because there are times where it does depend on what happens next. This is what happens with every gym ownership in January. I saw a hilarious meme the other day. It was a meme from Breaking Bad. They had him and his wife had that storage cell full of money Mm. sitting on the crate. In the meme caption, it said every gym owner in January. So (laughs) gym owners have spent a considerable amount of money decking up their gyms with cardio machines, time under tension machines, free weights, you name it. There's a myriad of options for people to use. They didn't just do it just to have it sitting there. They actually did it to help people out, to help people reach their goals, to help them become fitter. Yes, it's a business and yes, they want to profit out of it. I want to make money out of doing private lessons as well. They then employ people to come in and contract to them to help their customers out because when people are achieving their goals and when people are doing well, they'll go off and tell other people and say, hey, I went to Joe's gym. I met a personal trainer down there. They've transformed my life. I've lost 20 kilos. I feel in great shape. In fact, it's the best I've ever felt all my life. I'm eating well. I'm sleeping well. My waist is shrinking. My arms are growing. My chest is bigger. I feel great. And people go, you look great. You really do. And that's what we want to do in dog training as well. We want people to sell for us by providing a damn good service based on your the level of competency and education that you actually have at that time. You want to be able to pass that on to any of the clients. You also want to make sure that it's in line with, as I stipulated before, it's in line with what the problem is and get to the root cause of that problem. Sometimes they have no idea. They really don't. They're fumbling around in the dark because they have no experience. And that's why I said before, you're the smartest person in the room at that point in time. If you've seen this play out with clients and you will, it'll become repetitive. You'll see the same thing with variations in it. But after a period of time, you'll say, yeah, I can see it. There's a pattern here. Here is a couple of considerations. Consideration A is what I would play out before I'd go on to consideration B. Let's stick with that for this point in time, and then we can modify it as need be as time goes. The importance of this is 
this is going to be a little bit of back and forth until the program gets set in stone and they start being able to see observable change in the dog and they are invested in whatever they need to do. That's the hardest part of a client-trainer relationship is getting them to be totally invested in it. You and I, Pat, have talked backwards and forwards over years and Verity and I were having this conversation the other day. Whereas people like you, me, and multiples of other people that listen to this show, we're a different type of person than the vast majority of dog-owning people out there. Like when we set our mind to something, we actually want to do it because it's our industry, it's our passion, it's our job, it's our livelihood. To other people, it comes up when it's annoying them. I'm talking about 98% of the dog-owning public, sport dog owners and enthusiasts are like the tiniest percentage of people who actually do anything with their dogs. They do it mm-hmm. well, they do it well, and they do an amazing job of it, but we're in such a tiny, tiny, tiny percentile. When you're talking about people who own dogs, most people who own dogs are just people who have dogs in their backyard. These dogs are literally turning dog food into dog shit. That's what they're doing. Mm. And at the time when something happens, when the person says, today you've pissed me off, today you crossed the line. Today there needs to be some sort of reconciliation between us because right now I don't like you like I liked you yesterday. Therefore, a trainer needs to step into that situation. The best way to do that is common language. Don't go in there selling your your fancy course that you've just done because they won't understand one-tenth of that. What you need to do is you need to listen to how that person speaks, how they behave, how they move, what the relationship is between them and the dog. That needs to be part of the analytical program that you and them are working through. And therefore, you need to say, all right, I kind of get who you are, what you are, and what your dog is all about. Here is how I can break it down from you from my vast wealth of knowledge I have all these fancy terms. I'm a brilliant trainer. Between my peers and colleagues, I can have this amazing scientific or even terminology conversation that's very profound and people sort of sit there and think it's very highbrow. To a client, it's probably wasted energy and time. Those are the things, and I know from experience from when I've done it before, when I've been excited by going to a course or reading a book and then trying to impress upon a person who has no idea what I'm talking about, so they don't feel silly or left out or not included in this conversation, they will nod and they will look like they're great. And please, I'm not trying to insult anybody or saying that people that I go out and teach are idiots. Some of these people are much smarter than me in academic fields or even construction or whatever job they are. They're masterminds at them and I'm a dwarf compared to them in their field. But in dog training, I possess, and there are other people who listen to this show, yourself as well, who have almost a degree level of knowledge about what we're actually doing. It's just different. And until they know or until they invest in that, they're just not ready for it. Spend the time, find out who your client is, find out what the root cause of the problem is. And I really feel that's the best advice I could give. Mm. Yeah, I agree almost entirely. I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, we and others are constantly carrying on about increasing your skill set. That's one of the things when you see people who are like, no, 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 like I only train with food or no, I'm only play-based and and all this kind of stuff. It's like, that's fine for you and you can train dogs like that, but 100%. you need to have a massive skill set because when you go into someone's home, you need to be able to like assess that person and their ability to do the training rather than just saying like, this is how it's got to be and it's my way or the highway, exactly mm. as Eleanor sort of concerned about. 
is that's why I think you need to have a full gamut of training. And that's why I don't restrict myself in the tools that I use and the the reinforcers that I use and all of that is because when I'm at someone else's home and I've got their specific dog that has their specific problem living in their specific house and dealing with that specific person, there's a new formula that has to be created for them and designed specifically for them. And I think if you're just like, no, this is the only way to fix it, Unfortunately, that might be true. Like there are times and and like I've spoken about on the podcast before, like I've kind of had it out with a couple of clients only ever, like a couple of clients ever in my career that I've been like, no, this is the path, right? Because sometimes you get to that point where we've tried everything else and I've humored you along the way and it's still not working. And we get, we're at the point where we're like, no, we have to do the thing that you didn't want to do or else we're not going to fix the issue with the dog. And yeah. and that's fine by me too. Like I can't care about the dog more than you. I care about the dog very deeply. I want the problem solved. You've paid the money. I'm giving you the advice. But if you don't want to do it, I'm not going to force you to do it. Mm. And I think that's the sort of last part of that is that you do have to always kind of come to terms with the fact that you can only give people the information and you have to be fucking good at giving people the information. I think sometimes we see people say, well, you know, they didn't want to do it. It's like, did you pitch it to them or did you just tell them this is how it is? And then when they hit you with their objections, you didn't have anything to overcome. You said it really well a couple of episodes ago. There was a quote that you put out, the flexible will prevail. Yeah, for sure. Listening to you talking about that just triggered me to think of that quote again, because I really think that was a very sensible and profound quote. And it's been on my thinking list on almost a daily basis. The flexible yeah. shall or will prevail. I think that's a really apt in this conversation we're having now. A hundred percent. And I think you have to live by that. And like, I can tell you, there's been dozens of times where I've been in someone's house and I see maybe you misread the people because I've done that for sure. There's been dogs and owners that I've let down because I wasn't convinced that the owners would do the work. And so I gave them the softly, softly approach, thinking that's what they would go for. And they gave up before they fixed the problem because it was a timeline was too long for them. Right. Mm. And then I've had other people where I've said, like, this is what I want you to do. And as I'm saying it, you can read them like they're not going to do it. And you can see, and like immediately, I immediately stop and I address their concerns. And and I, I can think of one client in particular. I remember being in a home and it was an issue of uh, separation anxiety. And it wasn't true separation anxiety. It was just that the dog had way too much freedom in the house, right? And I was explaining what I wanted to do. And it was like tie-up exercises. I was like, well, what I want you to do is I want you to put the dog on leash and I want you to tether the dog to one side of the room where the dog would be anyway when you're together and just take away some of the choices that the dog has, mm-hmm. like make it be in the place that it is so that like that's the step one in then it being okay with you leaving, right? Like it's the very earliest step. Like, yes, you would be on your bed anyway, and I'm not going to tell you to be there and keep you there under control. I'm going to tether you so that you have to be there. And I'm going to get up to go to the toilet and you're going to stay there. You're not going to follow me in and you're going to have to learn that I'll be back in a minute. And we like the normal shit that every trainer does. And as I was explaining that, I could just see she wasn't going to do it. I could just read, like I could, <laughs> she was really engaged in the conversation. Yeah, I'll never forget. Like she was really engaged and was really into it and everything I'd said to that point. And as I was explaining that, just like the color ran from her face and like I, I knew she wasn't gonna do it. So I even stopped halfway through the explanation. And I was like, okay, we have to think of something else. I can see this isn't going to fly. And she was like, yeah, I'm not doing that. And I was like, okay, well, good thing. I know a bunch of other ways that we can do this. Right. So like, 
I think that's what's important is really having the broadest possible skill set that you can. Mm. And of course, there's going to be, by your definition and your standard, there's going to be a right and a wrong, or at the minimum, there's going to be a like most effective to least effective, but you pitch most effective, but if you can't sell it, then you're going to have to go with one of the less effectives. And so long as it's still effective, you're going to be okay. I think that that transparency is the key to that, like flexibility for sure. And then followed closely behind is transparency. Well, I'll say to people like, well, there's lots of ways we can do this. One of the ways is this, another way is this, another way is this, which one do you feel comfortable with? Because we can do them all. And these are the pros and cons of them. And we can, you know, we can't really chop and change, but we can for sure start one. If it turns out that that's not the way you want to go, then we can go to another. Yep. If this is taking too long, there's ways that we can do it quicker, but it's going to have more aversives involved. Maybe the learning experience is going to be not so pleasant for the dog, but if the choices are between this and you giving up on the dog tomorrow, then that's the choice that we make. Right. And like, I think that being as transparent as that and as diverse and flexible as that is the key to avoiding those tricky situations. I can't remember, like it was Chad that I heard say it the first time that he was quoting somebody else is that like the very best training modality for your client is the one that they will do. Right. And and I think that that has to be at the core of everything. It certainly is at the core of everything that I do. Now I'm blessed at the moment. I'm in a position where it's 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 pretty rare that my clients are like, no, I'm not doing that because for the most part, they know they come to me for a specific thing. But very often, I do a lot of these Zoom calls again at the moment, and sometimes but the camera comes on and there's people on the other side of it that are as good or better dog trainers than me. And they're like, hey, I want your opinion on something that I haven't, like a problem I haven't been able to solve. And I just want a second set of eyes or I want another opinion. Then the two of us are just kind of spitballing back and forth. Like, mm. okay, fuck, have we tried this? Like, what can we do about this? And I think I really enjoy those sessions. I, th- I find those very satisfying, but they are just full of these problem solving, right? Where I say to people like, well, have you tried this? They say, no, the client won't do that. Okay, fuck. And usually these situations are because either the people are at the limit of their personal skill set, they've kind of run out of ideas, or they're having client compliance problems. And they're like, it's not that I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to convey it. And that's something that I'm kind of known for is being able to explain things well. So I had a guy just a couple of weeks ago that was like, man, this is my issue. I'm having a hard time explaining it. Let's hit record. I'm going to record you explaining it. And then I'm going to say what you said verbatim to the client. I was like, no worries. Let's do it. All right. Because <laughs> like anything that will get them doing the thing is what we need. <sighs> couple of good questions. And I think both of them kind of hit the topic of like really assessing what works and what doesn't and not being dogmatic towards any particular style or technique or anything like that. Like if it doesn't serve you, fucking ditch it. If it's not going to, if it's not working towards your ultimate goal and your ultimate goal is success in, in many and various forms, if it doesn't drive you towards that, fucking get rid of it and replace it with something that does. But don't throw it out altogether because the skill set you have in that space will be usable again at another time. Absolutely. And, and, and I think that's, I think, what I have certainly evolved as a trainer over the last, I don't know, since I left the Army, how long eight or nine years or whatever. Like what I've evolved sort of a lot is the more skills you have, the more problems you can solve. It's one of the things I'm super excited about going to see Sean next week. Like I've got a lot of skills as a decoy, but you don't, if you don't use them, you lose them. Mm. And and I work, you know, most of the same kind of dogs. I see them all the time. And then you just think like, fuck, I forgot. Like I've forgotten a lot of the things 
I need that refresher, that that opportunity to do things that I've done in the past, to be reminded of of those things and to be sort of taught new things as well and put it all in the toolbox and have it all there so that when I face a problem, I know I've got a lot of options I can pull out. I'm not stuck with that one tool. Another quote that you used to frequent quite often was even Tiger Woods has a coach. (laughs) You know, even psychologists or psychiatrists need to go back and have a community with their peers. They need to make sure that they're sharp, learned, that their knowledge is up to date, that if anything else has been passed through the scientific community in their field, they need to be updated with it. And it's very much like us as well. You become a blunt knife every now and then. You have to go back to the stone and you have to find your sharp edge again. And that's just the reason why they call it honing the skill. It's the same thing when you're using that knife sharpening technique of, having that rod where you're sharpening your knife up and down, you're honing the edge back onto something that was dull and blunt. You know, there's many times in my career where I've become dull and blunt because I'm doing the same thing repetitive over and over again. And I've become locked into a picking line routine. It's like that old National Lampoon scene where they're driving around. They can't get out of that big roundabout in London where they keep going past the the tower and the Big Ben. And you just keep saying, Tower of London, yeah. Big Ben, you become very mundane and routine orientated. So yes, it's essential to go back to your peers and say, I could be missing some valuable information here. What am I overlooking? What am I not doing so well? Evaluate me, look at look at what I'm doing and read into, you know, like advise me, what do I need to fix in what I'm doing? Am I staying current? Am I saying the right thing? Does it sound relevant? Am I missing yeah. the point? Am I moving right? Am I not moving right? Should I be going left when I'm going right? What am I doing wrong? Tell me. You know, last week we we're talking about coaches and mentors and stuff. And I said that I had an incredible mentor in the army, a guy Griff. He was the one that said that to me about even Tiger Woods has a coach. Mm. And the circumstances under that, I'll tell you, it's worth the story. I make jokes about all the time about how what a bad fighter I am. And it's true. I just don't enjoy it. I'm just not good at it. And people think I'm sort of talking myself down, like just kind of being modest. I'm not. I'm fucking terrible. Like I cannot fight to save my life. But I'm a gunfighter. I'm very good with a gun, right? When I was at the school, we brought in this guy who was a world champion level IPSC competitor, right? And so he came in to teach us some like pistol drills and changeover drills and stuff like that. And we would regularly get people like that in. You know, my old unit has all kinds of strength coaches and all sorts of people that they, they're getting because there's a budget for that to mm. bring in this and sort of run the run the red pen over what we do and tell us what you think and see what we can change because our life depends on us being good at our job. We don't play for points. We don't play pretendies. We're fucking killers. And we need to be better than our enemy, right? So we brought in this guy as a like world-level IPSC competitor and he did this shoot and he showed her this demo thing and then I outshot him, right? And I could consistently outperform him. I was a very different person at that point. This is a long time ago too. And I made sort of a flippant remark about like, oh, well, I guess me and you are done, right? Like if I just <laughs> shot better than you, right? Like and I was a dick when I said it. And that's when Griff pulled me aside and he goes, hey man, like I don't give a fuck if you can shoot better than him. You can't teach it the way that he can teach it. And you need to remember that even Tiger Woods has a coach. Now, if that guy can make you better, he isn't better than you. But if he can make you better, then it's worth listening to everything he fucking says. And I was like, you know, it was one of those conversations. Like, I'll never forget. I remember where I was standing. I remember, like, I can remember the smell in the air at the time. It was a very important conversation. Mm. 
And it stuck with me forever. And it was like, even if you're better than the guy in the moment, it doesn't mean that he can't make you better. And I look at that in in regards to everything that you're involved that I'm involved with. If someone can make you better, then fucking their opinion is absolutely like welcome and valid. Mate, I concur. I still remember the day that when I was an apprentice electrician and Gary, my A grade electrician on that I was learning with, when I fucked up and I pulled all this cable and I cut it what I thought was absolute. And what I realized is I hadn't made allowances for fitting it off. It was hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of very expensive cable. And I'd cut it to a point where we actually needed to bring more, like go down and buy more cable. And some of it was able to be salvaged, some of it wasn't. But I still remember the feeling like the blood running out of my veins and into my feet when I realized what happened. I thought Gary is going to kill me. And I loved Gary. Like I really loved him. He was funny. He was a really good guy. I'm remiss that I didn't actually mention him as a mentor, but it was Gary who turned around to me and he said, mate, let me tell you, you can always cut some off, but you can't cut some back on. That was just a lesson in the time. But even then, it's been a life lesson for me about things where I've had to stop and think in my tracks about thinking that, you know, I can cut some off here, but I just can't cut some back on. I was interviewing people for jobs the other day we've got ads in for, for dog trainers at the moment. And I was interviewing people. There was somebody that I kind of liked, but they just didn't have the it factor that I needed. And I knew it, but I kept trying to make excuses for it. And then I thought, I just can't cut some on this. It's just not going yeah, to yeah. be. It wasn't an insult to the person. I'm not trying to say that they could never learn, but in the time that I needed them to be up to date where they needed to be, I just couldn't make it happen. So I had to realize to myself right there and then I just couldn't cut some on. So yes, those comments, those sayings, those things that people are trying to tell us, it's the same thing when parents are trying to talk to their kids about all the reckless and stupid things they did in earnest to try and not have their kids go through that same upset or being irresponsible if they're drinking alcohol or taking drugs or whatever they're doing. They're trying to say, hey, I did it. It didn't work out so well because of these things that happened. I would really prefer that you didn't do these sort of things. But, you know, like when you're young and when you're headstrong and when you think you know everything that's right and the mere fact that your prefrontal cortex has not developed entirely until you're about 26 years of age, you still think you're a world beater and you know all of the answers. It's a maturity thing sometimes. It's a scientifically proven maturity thing that sometimes the brain is just not quite prepared for the information that you had at time. There have been many things that people have told me, many advisors, leaders, bosses, parental figures, parents, mentors, whatever it is, that they've told me something, the young version of me, that I've been remiss at taking their advice. Now when I look back on it, I think I really wish – that I started my life or my direction with that advice. But, you know, like I said, with playing guitar, there was a time where I thought, why couldn't I learn this at the start? And the answer was, I wasn't ready for it. It wasn't going to work for me because I just was not ready to comprehend that yet. Mm. That's the shitty thing about, I guess, about going through those youthful periods and reflecting back into thinking about clients. There are times where clients just aren't ready for certain pieces of information yet until they can actually see it unfolding and it's manifesting in a way that makes sense to them. Yeah, for sure. Hey, we might need to wind up. Yeah, I reckon that's the place to leave it. Mm. Two questions. This list is going to keep us going. Yes, it is. (laughs) We made a list of like 
six of them and we thought, oh, yeah, we're going to smash through this. And uh, Yeah, no, we got two in. All right, well, we'll be carrying on in the next coming episodes. When do you leave? I leave on Sunday the 5th of Feb. Okay. Yeah, so uh, we need to get a few done before then so that they can keep coming out. And I plan on, I'm taking all my gear, or not all my gear, I'm taking some of my gear and going to try and make a bunch of content while I'm there. There's a video that I've been meaning to make for ages that there's many videos I've been meaning to make, but this one's been playing on my mind because of at least once a week, I get someone either email me or DM me or something wanting to know how to film and they want to know what kind of camera to get. It's always, which camera should I get? And I'm finally making a video comparing a ton of cameras that I got from my old work and showing that just stick with your phone. Yep, (laughs) That's the punchline is that unless you're going to push very high-end camera to its limits, so that your phone's going to do as good a job. But I've got all the footage of that. I've just got to film the A-roll, the actual talking head part, but I'm really excited about that. And then while I'm gone, I'm going to make a, a, a ton of stuff while I'm gone. So I'm really excited. I saw a guy online showing two clips that looked absolutely amazing. You know, like they did all the graphics and the high-end effects and everything like that. And the question was from the person, can you tell me what sort of gear that I've been using? He was pointing to the screen of answers that people had given him about what type of camera and everything like that. And he pulled his iPhone out of his pocket and he goes, that's all I used. Yeah. He was showing direct comparisons from DSLRs and so forth and his camera phone. And he just said, tell me what the difference is. And it was Mm. almost impossible to tell what the difference was because of the way he shot Mm. it and everything like that. He reflected on points that you said. He said, yeah, look, there are advantages for using these high-end cameras and I could go into them, but it gets quite technical with the explanation. And he said, but if you're looking for good content, reliable content, he said, I'm telling you, you can do 90% of what you need to do on your camera phone. Yeah, He said even probably high percentages than that. Yeah, camera phone falls apart in a couple of specific circumstances. Low light is the the, the yep. main one because the sensor is just too small. But I think the reality is, and this is what I'm going to explain in this video. I'm you know I'm giving away the whole thing. Hopefully, people still watch it because I'm putting a fucking ton of work into it. Is that all the entry level and mid range cameras are outperformed in most circumstances by your your phone? Yeah. And so like that's so what I usually tell people when they contact me and they say, "Hey, I want to get a camera to film training." what should I get into? I usually ask them what kind of phone they have. And I'm like, get a newer phone rather than spending, you know, if your budget is $2,000, you're going to get a very entry level camera for $2,000, or you can get a very high end phone. You're better off getting the phone. Anyway, you'll see in the video, hopefully I'll have it out in the next week or so. So before we go into the actual windup, Pat and I have been discussing the potential of actually pulling the trigger and developing a studio of, mm. uh, like a proper an actual studio, an actual studio, like a room where we can deck it out properly, soundproof it. There's a lot of moving parts on that. Number one, we've got to get grants with my bosses that we can actually do it on site. I think I can plug it that we can. The other one is the unfortunate side is it's going to absolutely cost a shitload of cash. Yeah. <laughs> That's where we're going to appeal to you. And hopefully you guys aren't sitting at home going, these fucking guys just telling Fuck us to, guys dig deeper into our pockets. To be honest, if we're going to pull it off, the only way we can do this is ask for community help to actually pull it off. It's a big task. There's a lot that needs to be done. The actual facility itself, not only is it expensive, but it's also, it's portable. So it can be broken down and built on site. And then if anything, you know, like if we ever move off, it can be packed up and taken off site again. 
quite easily. We've been joking about the Whisper Room for literally five years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're discussing that it might be time to actually do it. I think long-term, the goal would be then to yeah, do a video podcast. I think that most podcasts these days are going over to YouTube and starting to have, if not the full thing in video, but yep. at least clips and stuff like that. And we're seriously considering the potential of doing that. One of the hard parts about, even here at Dural, even one of the hard parts, I was watching the girls do handbacks the other day and they were filming something they did and they played it back to me to let me watch it. And it's just a cacophony of dogs barking all the time that you yeah. can't. And yes, we're at a kennel and people say, oh, well, that's expected. But when you're actually trying to put out decent content for Patreon and so forth, and you've got dogs barking, yelling. We have to be selective about the time we record this to make sure there's not too much traffic coming through. There's not dogs out the front barking and yelling and carrying on out the front. There's a myriad of things that we have to consider. And yeah, we've got by, we've done really well on what we've done all these years in in doing this, but it also means that there's time constraints on when we're actually doing it. We're trying to think outside the square of what we can do to grow this, just move into different territory, something that people have been asking us to consider. I'd like to consider that. I'd like to have a place of our own that we can go into if we need to do it to record content, as I said, for Patreon or doing a clip or recording the podcast for as a YouTube content. This is the way forward. This is the way it's got to be done. Yeah. Stand by for more info on that. Yeah. All right. That's it. Another episode of the Canon Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, like, rate, share, subscribe, listen to it twice, send it to a friend, pull your AirPod out, stick it in somebody else's ear. That was hilarious, <laughs> Carlos, when you put that in the, the group. I thought that was very funny. I screenshot it and posted it. Yep, in. it was um, very The main well thing done. is to just try and bring in more people. That's the key. If you like the show and you think there's value in it, please tell a friend, do one of those sorts of things where the very best thing you could do is tell someone in real life that you like the show and try and convince them to listen to it. If you want to support the show, best way to do that is to jump into Patreon. A few bucks a month gets you access to extra content, this giant backlog of information that's in there as well as new stuff going forward. I'm mm. always looking for things to put in there for you guys. As well as every month I do a live stream, a live Q&A. Uh, and you can donate as much as you want. And going forward, at some point, we're going to do the Bernie Sanders and, and once again, ask for your support in order to build the studio that we want. <laughs> but another way you can support the show is to jump into Teespring and get yourself some cool merch there. The links to all of that is on our website. So the, the best way to get all the links, it turns out that most most of you kind of figure this out, but is to go to canonparadigm.com and check out. There's It's all listed there. And show notes. It's always in the show notes. Every, every yeah. show notes that you go into, there's all links and everything that they can get links all the information. Yep. Links, links, links. You'll find it. Hey, I want to do uh, a you, Crowdcast. Is that what you call it? I want to do one with you guys. Somebody said a while ago that I really should be doing one and I agree I should be doing one. So I want to do one with you guys. We can either talk about detection or we can talk about anything. So if you want to have a, a live stream with me, we can just have a, a bit of a riff backwards and forwards. Pat's going to be in the States. I am happy to do one where we can just hang out and talk dog training concepts and detection, complex skills, whatever you want to do. That's exciting. Yeah. All right, cool. And if you want to get in contact with us, best way to do that is jump into the discussion group. Again, I know I keep saying this and I, I just am a very time poor person. And we're recording this in the middle of the night because I'm solo dad at the moment, but I will eventually get a discord going. I will hopefully in the next few days, actually, I really want to pull the trigger on this is get a mailing list. I absolutely need to set that up and get a mailing list because social media is changing it is a very strange place currently. And it like if you want to stay in touch with us and if you want information that comes from us, 
We're going to get you to jump onto those things. But in the meantime, please jump into the Canine Paradigm discussion group on Facebook. It's in the show notes. You can search it up. Jump into there. That's a great way to stay involved in the community. And I really, really want to, intend to, and will strengthen and grow that community in the coming times. The last way to get in contact with us, if you want to shoot us an email, we are info at thecanonparadigm.com. Goodbye. <laughs>